Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Sustainable, a podcast on sustainability from an interdisciplinary perspective. I'm your host, Rosalie, and today's guest is Dr. Britt Ray. She's a broadcaster and author researching the social and ethical entanglements of science and technology with a focus on the planetary health crisis and synthetic biology. She has a PhD in science communication from the University of Copenhagen and is the author of Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. She's hosted several podcasts, radio, and TV programs with the BBC and CBC and is a TED resident as well. Currently, she's writing a book about the mental health impacts of the climate and wider ecological crisis. If you're interested in learning more about the mental health impacts of the climate crisis, please subscribe to her newsletter called Gen Dread on Substack. In this episode, we discuss how her rich interdisciplinary background informs her approach. We discuss her newsletter, in addition to mechanisms to enable internal activism or emotional intelligence around the climate and greater ecological crisis. Without further ado, please welcome her to the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for taking the hour, you know, taking the time to do it. I am so glad, like, you're doing the work that you're doing. I love your newsletter. I, I oh, listen to your TED Talk. Like, it's just really necessary work that needs to be done. And it, it makes me happy that people are doing it. Yeah. I, the one thing that I love to do is just to start broad and kind of yeah, maybe start sure. personal. But, like, how did you become interested in sustainability? Has it been mm-hmm. a lifelong thing for you? just either being interested in science, being interested in nature, or like, how did that journey actually start for you? Yeah, well, I would say the inception was probably, you know, growing up in Ontario and going to Northern Ontario wild spaces and places as a kid and and connecting with nature in those kinds of fundamental ways when you're quite young. But when I was uh, in undergrad, I studied biology as my degree. And I focused as much as possible on conservation biology in the various courses and labs that I took. And kind of an evolutionary ecology and conservation biology approach is riddled with data and news about how dire the situation is for the non-human world. And so, you know, starting at the age of 17, Mm -hmm. beginning that degree and following it for four years, it was just kind of part of my daily diet to to take in information about the decline of of species, which also with it, of course, means that humans are imperiled as well. And that information was just very um, overwhelming Mm -hmm. and and constant. And it felt like conservation was the steadily declining slope with a lot of people with great um, motivations and intentions trying to kind of walk it up the escalator that's steadily moving down, you know? Right. <laughs> and, um, and so I think my passions were really lit on fire then because I was yeah. just really emotionally concerned. But I wouldn't say that it's a direct through line from that time in my life to the way right. that I approach the subject now. I think a yeah. lot of various things happened along the way. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was just, I remember having a really deep and profound sense that we just can't go on like this. You know, humans are making manifold wrong decisions Mm -hmm. and 
we are endangering future generations yeah. and all of that was just super clear before I was right. 20, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So constant yeah. existential threat as a yeah. not even 20 year old. Yes. Right. Though I, I wouldn't say it felt super heavy at the time. It gotcha. felt, um, it felt intellectually very clear, yeah. but it didn't feel emotionally overwhelming. And I think that what's happened in my life since then was that um, even I did, I think I just used the words emotionally overwhelming beforehand to say, yeah. excuse me for kind of contradicting myself. But what <laughs> I mean to say, is, although I understood it on an emotional level, because I could yeah. you know, feel things for these non-human animals <laughs> and I could watch all of my favorite BBC nature documentaries and feel yeah. like, I knew what I was going to do with my life because it helped outline a career path mm -hmm. by getting in touch with people who were focusing on conservation through, through media and through scientific yeah. research. Yeah. It really didn't become emotionally overwhelming in the way that it is now until about three years ago for me. And I okay. think there's a huge difference between yeah. intellectually appreciating how bad the situation is mm -hmm. and then letting it actually flood into your whole nervous system. Yeah. And yeah. it's when we bring the thinking and the feeling together right. that we really wake up yeah. and change everything yeah. about how we approach life mm -hmm. and the role that we have to play here. Yeah. Cause oftentimes in a classroom, it can be, not necessarily the best environment or most appropriate environment to talk about very emotionally sensitive and heavy yeah. topics, right? And yeah. we're trying to cover them, like you said, in an intellectual way, but like, how do we make space to allow students and, and people learning about it to also feel while they're learning it? Like, should it be, at least for me, it's very easy to just internalize everything <laughs> very quickly, right? Yeah. And like, if I do learn something intellectually, like it maybe very quickly, becomes emotional for me and yeah. right like that's definitely why I'm focusing on the subject right like I don't think people do this um because it's fun right it's because it's necessary and we know that we have to yeah. right um what what do you think about like dealing with that right um learning intellectually but also balancing the emotional side like doing do, doing that simultaneously or perhaps not simultaneously what do you think well, I don't think we really have control over that in yeah. ways that it registers. <laughs> I think, you know, these experiences of encountering the information, which is increasingly dark, yeah. can hit us in ways that we're not ready for. And what we need to do is build up our stamina and our resilience to be able to deal yeah. with this hugely um, kind of complicated and broad, heavy, and also hopeful spectrum yeah. of feelings that come with encountering the truth, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so what happens most often is that people start to get stressed or feel anxious yeah. or ambivalent about what the science is saying because they realize, oh my gosh, you know, right. this is really bad and it's really uncomfortable and it's too scary and I need to look yeah. away. You know, as some of my friends have said, I need to prioritize my own happiness. Yeah. That's more important to me than dealing with this crisis at right. all times. And therefore I knowingly stick my head in the sand because yeah. it's just a priority of me, my own right. to feel happy, you know? And that's, that's a thing that a lot of people, I think understandably yeah. um, either decide to do with that conscious mm -hmm. 
line of thought or more often do it unconsciously yeah. because we have a wonderful cadre of sophisticated defenses that pop right. up unconsciously to protect us from pain. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's kind of the initial step. Then yeah. when we acknowledge that we can work with it more productively and yeah. not necessarily just fall victim to different unconscious defenses that will push the truth out of our minds and cause right. us to not engage with it, we can yeah. then start seeing, okay, the next level being something like ambivalence. Okay, yeah. this feels uncomfortable because I know that my lifestyle and my choices and mm -hmm. the things I'm committed to in life are actually not helping the problem and right. it feels overwhelming as to how I'm going to change my ways so that I yeah. can really align my values with my actions. That's a whole process that people need to go through in the the real um, tricky thing is that our culture and our institutions, our organizations, our places of education have not created the emotional intelligence skills to help yeah. walk people through these conflicts and these ambivalences and these, uh, you know, pangs of discomfort mm -hmm. that come with waking up to the truth. And, and yeah. I think we really need to shift quickly into creating emotional yeah. sustenance and support so that people yeah. can process those things and not just mm -hmm. then get stuck either in paralysis or yeah. having their head be in the same right because we all need to find ways to enact our inner yeah. our inner ability to change and yeah. create something positive yeah and obviously in your newsletter you know you address this often and mm -hmm. like understandably so right like you're talking about these things and i definitely want to talk about you know the piece on a couple of your pieces, but specifically, you know, the one on activism as, you know, it's not a solution to yeah. dealing with this. One thing that I kind of want to briefly touch on before we get into some of your writing specifically is just how your thinking and your background in terms of your education affects the way that you think, because it is very interdisciplinary. Yeah. How, right. does, how does it affect your approach? Like, how does it affect your thinking? And um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned my early days in biology, my undergraduate yeah. degree is in biology and, you know, conservation biology has always been a focus. And um, then I went to art school. I did a, I went to a full on art school where I was the only scientist in my master's where everyone was getting MFAs and masters of design. And um, it was an interdisciplinary program. And I was looking at synthetic biology and area of science through the lens of art and design and you know, critical theory and things like this. And I think that that two years really made it my interdisciplinary practice concrete and allowed me to create uh, an identity for myself mm -hmm. working across art and science. Yeah. I also, yeah, studied and did a graduate diploma in communications. And I've been a, a radio producer since mm -hmm. I was ni 19 and hosted a bunch of podcasts and television yeah. shows and things like that with various broadcasters. Yeah. So uh, I have the media practice element, yeah. the science, you know, data-driven mm -hmm. interests, and then this kind of art interest in art sensibilities yeah. and the questions that can be asked from more uh, creative disciplines right. that have a critical bent to them. And so I think in my work, they all, they all fold together. I ended up doing yeah. a PhD in science communication, mm -hmm. but I did it while using interdisciplinary methods of research right. creation that meant that I was studying interactive documentary and how we communicate science at the oh. same time. Um, in a sense, they're inseparable, I guess, yeah. in my approach. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, perhaps it's just driven by my personality. I'm mm -hmm. interested in these various things and then I work them together. Yeah. It's always really hard to explain what I do. <laughs> and so, so have you been an artistic person your whole life? Like has that, the reason that you did that degree in the first place was because you're interested in art and design? Yeah, yeah. Yes, gotcha. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, yes. I think for me, like it's it's been so hard to bring in art into my intellectual life. Like mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it, it's so easy to separate them, um, mm -hmm. and we're so used to doing that. But the fact that you have this experience in bringing the two together specifically, um, I like I wish I saw that more. And I and I'm really glad that you have the expertise in that. Well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just a way to keep myself interested. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes I, um, I just say I've been chasing things that make me feel excited and inspired yeah. about the world and then finding ways to enmesh them that make sense and can kind of further a line of inquiry or, yeah. you know, open up a different way of approaching a project or solving a problem. Yeah. And it's not, it's not traditional. It is, it comes with challenges interdisciplinary mm -hmm. work for sure, because there's no clear cut path that's already yeah. paved for you. Yeah. And you, you have to spend a lot of your time kind of justifying, but I think right. it's worth it in the end because it, it keeps it fresh and interesting. Yeah. It seems like you, you know, in your work, like you're obviously bringing your whole self into your work, yeah. you know, there's, there's no barrier, like, it, it, right? It's, it seems, it seems that way, like. It's definitely <laughs> that way now that I'm doing this climate and emotions yeah. and mental health work. I mean, there really yeah. is no barrier. I'm, I'm writing a book right now about yeah. these yeah. themes and in it, I absolutely share a lot of myself. It's right. a, it's a vulnerable and intimate book as well as a research-based book. Yeah. Um, that's very and, hard to do, I'm sure, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's scary yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, just even the decision to write about yourself right. in that way and you yeah. not for the sake of telling my stories, you know, because yeah. I think that they're great, but rather I can be <laughs> unsparing with the details and use yeah. them as a probe to look at this moment we're in and how people are relating right. to, to this crisis. And, you know, there's ethical considerations when you're trying to use other people's stories and that's um, true. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes it more ethically sound to just work use yourself, <laughs> use yourself exactly yeah. rather than expose, uh, you know, highly sensitive yeah. narratives from yeah. other people's lives. Although there is some of that right. in there too, with their, with other okay. people's consent for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just mean to say that it's useful as a storyteller to, yeah. And, and you're you're modeling this behavior, right? To right. actually talk about your emotion and in hoping perhaps that like other people would do the same, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it gives permission and it helps to normalize yes. this. And yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing with this topic as well yeah. is that so many people who are stressed or in some kind of distress, yeah. anguish, just feel so oppressed by their feelings before they find a community who can mirror their concerns and tell them, you're not an abject freak <laughs> for having this <laughs> anxiety or yeah. grieving because of whatever, you know, horrible thing you just read. It is absolutely appropriate and you're not yeah. alone. And right. it is so, it's just very uh, incredible to see how distributive mm -hmm. it is for the pain. Like the pain yeah. gets broken up and spread out across yeah. people when you find a container or a community to uphold it with you and, and normalize it and help you yeah. understand that you're not experiencing anything pathological. And right. so, right. 
we're trying to do this. We're trying to set these new norms inside of a culture that generally yeah. hasn't done that yet. So yes, um, good, good point that you bring up. Yeah. That I, I'm trying to model that too. Yeah. I, I think one, I've brought it up in my other interviews, but it, this, this topic keeps coming up, but like, um, I'm really interested in the idea of a normative or norm cascade, uh, yeah. you know, right. Like, especially after a really disruptive event like COVID or any disruptive mm -hmm. event, um, mm -hmm. just the possibility of there being a norm cascade of, for me, something that I would like to see is just uh, more emotional awareness and openness and transparency with each other, right? But that's just like me hoping that certain behaviors would be just repeated enough so that they're yeah. considered a norm. Right. I would love to actually just start talking about your newsletter because there's so much to talk about in terms of the topics too. But um, I think a good place to start with is probably just the range of feelings, the eco-anxiety, mm -hmm. right? When you were writing that piece, like, um, what is usually your motivation for writing the, the, the newsletters themselves? Like, hmm. when you're writing them, what are your motivations for them? Well, the motivation overall for the entire Gen Dread newsletter project yeah. is to create a living, breathing timeline yeah. of, of conversations, um, news and analysis, research updates, to ground the community of people who are, you know, thinking and working at the cutting edge of what the emotional and mm. mental health and kind of well-being toll is of the climate and water ecological yeah. crisis, as well as create a community of, you know, supportive readers and thinkers, makers, doers in this yeah. space who are both you know, seeding this area with new insights, but also just hungry for help. People who need yeah. ideas about how to cope better. And there really wasn't anything out there yet doing that, certainly yeah. not in a newsletter format, but mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing a lot more op-eds yeah. and, and writing and documentaries that right. are exploring these topics. And that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We just don't have many places that are not kind of one-off explorations. Yeah. And so I wanted to create a place where, where this could just right. go on through time because obviously this issue yeah. is not going away and yeah. we all need insights and there's certainly no one answer. We need all right. hands on deck and all different kinds of wisdom. Yeah. So that was the overall, you know, general motivation, but yeah. also yeah. it connects, it connects to the book that I have mm -hmm. been writing and that's coming out in 2022. 22. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Still, still so long, but hey, it's coming. <laughs> it'll be. Yeah, and, it'll uh, be and that was the other thing, you know, my book was actually supposed to come out in 2021 and then it got pushed oh. to 2022. And yeah, I yeah. was just like, I cannot hold these yeah. ideas back in 2022. <laughs> There's too much going on right now. There are too, yeah. like, too many people feeling anxious and yeah. paralyzed or overwhelmed or whatever the yeah. feeling is for them. And they're asking for help. And I see it. Yeah. I see it on Twitter. I see it in articles. Mm -hmm. You know, I see it on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah. I see it in conversations. I see how quickly the emotional conversations out in the world and the communities that I mix with are becoming more sophisticated when I look yeah to see how people talk about something like climate grief two years ago yeah. compared to now. <laughs> you know, it's rapidly changing. And so yeah. I thought the newsletter would be a place where I could share some ideas before yeah. my book comes out without right. actually writing from yeah. the book. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when it comes to individual pieces, you know, they each, I suppose, have a different motivation. But with the one yeah. that you cited that really looks at 
why activism isn't a cure for eco-anxiety mm -hmm. and how complex the emotions are of eco-anxiety. Yeah. It's not just anxiety. Yeah. The, um, so I, I profile there the ideas of a clinical um, psychotherapist who focuses mm -hmm. on climate aware issues named yeah. Caroline Hickman. Right. And I'm just a super fan of hers. I think <laughs> she is very um, probing of this crisis in a way that not many people are. Mm -hmm. She's extremely honest and direct and um, explores the darkness, gets into the underbelly yeah. of it and really understands the human unconscious. She's got a lot of, mm -hmm. kind of Jungian gotcha. perspectives, but, yeah. Yeah. but she does so in a way that is um, comforting and feels very real and very yeah. honest. And she never cuts people off from their emotions. And she's got tons of experience of working with hundreds of people feeling distressed about the climate crisis in places like the Maldives in the UK. And I had done mm -hmm. this, um, I had done this course with her where yeah. she was training other therapists on how to help their clients on issues of eco-anxiety. Oh. And I attended that even though I'm not a therapist mm -hmm. and I, uh, it was an eight hour webinar and I just gotcha. learned so much that I, found very useful and the piece you're talking about is literally me just skimming the surface yeah. of things that I <laughs> learned that day but I I thought that these were some of the most salient and profound mm -hmm. ideas that would help people find themselves and see mm -hmm. themselves on that spectrum as well as get beyond this simplistic idea that we can just beat the feelings back if we become better activists mm -hmm. like we can yeah. fight our our ways out of the emotional pain right. uh, because you know as you've seen in the piece that actually will backfire yeah what the, the key point, uh, there are a lot of them in, in this piece specifically, but the, the fact that internal activism is just as important as external, yes. right? That, yes. can, can we elaborate on that? Like, I'd love to explore that, yeah. right? That's, that's really like the crux right. of the piece for me when I read it. Yes, yes. Right? Um, I think that is the crux of the piece, definitely. <laughs> Great, yeah. Um, the idea of internal activism is is what Caroline Hickman puts forth at, you might call it um, in emotional intelligence. Okay. Uh, you might call it um, inner resilience. It's okay. about getting in touch with your own ability to go deep, go down, go dark, deal with depression, anxiety, grief, feelings of being um, absolutely terrified about yeah. the future. The things that are integral to waking up to the climate and wider ecological emergency. We can't escape them yeah. when we really open ourselves up to what the data is saying and what our inaction collectively is producing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't actually care for yourself on that level yeah. of internal dynamics and build up your capacity to go there, to go to these right. various places, you end up becoming more impacted by them. They actually will stick to you and cling to you because your pain and your fear of that pain doesn't allow you to process them in healthy ways and have them move through you. Essentially, yeah. you know, a lot of us are afraid that depression and anxiety and things like this will just overrun our life and mm -hmm. become this gang of feelings that colonize our entire experience right. if we let them in. And so we use these various defenses to keep them out. Yeah. But if we learn how to healthily integrate them, we'll notice that they actually do move through us. Mm -hmm. They can pass through us. And as they do, they point out useful, valuable things, like what we're really yeah. worried about and what's going on in our collective external right. world that needs our attention, you know, swiftly and yeah. boldly. And 
And so internal activism is about exercising your own relationship to your feelings yeah. and yeah. knowing that it's okay to feel these things and mm -hmm. it's appropriate. And you're one of many people feeling this right. because the earth is changing in ways that are, you know, absolutely yeah. not, not safe for mm -hmm. the things that we care about in the world, exactly. including ourselves. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's really just about creating yeah. the emotional intelligence to do that internal activism right to build yourself up, to become resilient so that you can experience these things because emotions don't follow a linear progression. Mm -hmm. You know, you go up and down yeah. at various times and you cycle through them and you'll return again, even if you feel you've gotten over your grief yeah. and now you're stronger, you'll likely end up back there at another right. point. And so right. these are tools to use as, yeah. as you move through this very right. intense crisis and the problem is that no one talks about internal activism yeah. everyone talks about external activism yeah. everyone says the solutions to the climate crisis lie in pressuring your representatives and right. divesting from fossil fuels and yeah getting a you know regenerative economy and all the other great solutions that we do need but we yeah. also yeah. really need to upgrade this right this important part because usually emotions are disallowed and when we cut people off from their yeah. emotions bad things happen. Yeah. And usually when we're talking about these solutions, we never address the, any emotional implication of the solution. Yeah. 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 That's <laughs> um, <very true>. Right. <laughs> it, it, it seems though, right, that internal activism requires an enormous amount of reflection. Yes. Yeah. And you need, you need to be able to do that. And you mm -hmm. need to be able to be self-aware in order to reflect. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Let's, I'd love to just explore the the action and the concept of reflection if if we can i mean just briefly because i feel like it it might be very difficult for a lot of people to do that because it it is difficult and it has been difficult for me to do that mm. right um like how do we create openness to reflection is it through i'm sure it helps when we we model it and then people around us do the same and we talk through these things especially yeah um but yeah, I mean, it's just, we don't have a culture where that reflection is considered valuable. Mm -hmm. We never really have time to do any reflexive activity. Mm. Like I, I uh, did not live very consciously through the start of the, the 2000s, mm -hmm. right? But like, I've read so many articles talking about how when that period happened, like there just wasn't enough time to reflect on that new century. We just kind of mm -hmm. jumped through. Mm -hmm. it's kind of gotten us partially to like where we are now is we haven't had time to just stop and reflect what what do you think about that i think we need to all get very real with ourselves and with other people and that yeah. means brushing all of the performativity of fineness and okayness and yeah. you know just progress and growth and these things yeah. that our culture celebrates out mm. of the way to be able to have real, authentic, emotionally open conversations, yeah. whether that means just within yourself to get to really look yeah. at your feelings, but especially with other people, because we yeah. need to create these normative cascades that allow us to connect with other people about these things that matter enormously, yeah. but that we are usually still cut off from feeling because- right we don't have an emotionally intelligent society. Yeah, yeah. We can't afford to get stuck there. 
because mm-hmm. emotions are the crucible through which we can become more effective actors in the world to uphold social right. justice, environmental justice, to really connect with this deep, deep pain that we have that shows us what we need to do. And then mm-hmm. we can activate that towards yeah. something life sustaining. I mean, we are absolutely lucky um, yeah. to feel as alive as we feel when we're in pain about what's going on in the world, you know, when we're anxious about it. And so if it's hard for, for someone listening, it, I would, I would say, allow yourself space and time, Yeah, you know, like explicitly build, build that permission in for yourself to just explore, you know, mindfulness techniques of, of naming and observing feelings that come up with an element of curiosity um, are really, really useful. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm not saying everyone feels this way. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to, you don't have to force yourself to connect with it if you're genuinely not yeah. finding it. It's just about what is real and authentic to you. And um, the more that we can have, I think, difficult kind of unpopular conversations with other people yeah. about the mess that we're in, mm-hmm. the, the better we'll, we'll be able to, to find those emotions and articulate them. Yeah. It, it's, it, it definitely seems like a muscle that you have to build, right? You have to like practice this. It's, it's right. You, we have to like repeatedly visit this and, and actually practice the behavior. Well, it's interesting. I mean, for, I, I guess it's different for different people. Um, mm. For me, it, it feels very natural. Yeah. Um, it feels kind of unavoidable. <laughs> Me too. Just yeah, the feelings are very, very. They they're present and yeah. they're making themselves known, and they affect the way I think about you know yeah. many many things, and increasingly so the future, and and so I, I let the emotions guide me, but. Yeah. I, I think what definitely takes practice and is not easy is connecting with others over it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I am studying and thinking about this stuff and interviewing hundreds of people yeah. from various fields about um, environmental emotions and, and psychiatric trauma related to climate yeah. change and things like this. Yeah. And still, I notice myself slipping constantly when I'm in conversations mm-hmm. with people who are, let's say, not in the climate world. Yeah. Because I, I can see it's making them uncomfortable. They're getting squirmish, right. you know. Um, it's not something they want to visit. It, there's yeah. kind of an allergy yeah. to, to talking about the tough stuff yeah. when it comes to the writing on the wall. Not, yeah. And by that, I'm not saying the writing on the wall, like it's decided what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not at all what I mean, mm-hmm. but just the, the truth yeah. of what's already kind of baked in. Yeah. And, um, and there's an impulse to try and make, make things okay and yeah. make things yeah. comfortable and immediately get onto a pleasant pleasant topic but yeah I think there's a you know Renee Lertzman is a climate psychologist who's done a lot of research around this and she her research shows that you know many people who are kind of seemingly avoiding the topic yeah are not actually apathetic our our initial reading of them might be that they don't care and they're just living out their desires without consideration of what that means for our collective Mm -hmm. well-being but actually, most often, yeah. people do really care. Yeah. They really are just torn, anxious, ambivalent right. about how they're living in the world yeah. and what it's producing. And it's intolerable. These, these truths are too difficult to be able yeah. to, to face and deal with. Mm-hmm. And 
they don't exercise, they don't build up their uh, equipment right. room for yeah. dealing yeah. with what the emotional internal activism requires. Right. And again, as we've mentioned, push yeah. it away, kick it down yeah. the road. It's yeah. too uncomfortable. They're right. in a society or a culture that promotes them doing that. And um, it mm -hmm. leaves them more despondent and feeling, yeah. feeling overwhelmed essentially and unable right. to take the action they want to, but it's not that they don't care. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're all wrestling with various parts of this and we're all in different kinds of denial. Mm -hmm. And um, the best thing we can do is to start having conversations about yeah. what our feelings are. It doesn't yeah. matter what they are. They could be anywhere. They could be yeah. helpful and inspired, you know, they yeah. could be joyous. Yeah. yeah. But still Mine usually uh, bounce back and forth between the, yeah. 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 It, it seems like, there's a, an aversion, right? And I, I'm a typically very risk averse person. Um, and I think that there are just a lot of people who are averse to like dealing with either their emotions or just dealing with the, the potential effects of climate change and uh -huh. they're averse to thinking about them maybe deeply, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. You mentioned Renee Lertzman, right? And I'd love to talk about, um, you know, her research on how we're living out of alignment, as you say, yeah. in the piece, right? And we, we talked about the fact that people's values are generally, they, they do care, right? So mm -hmm. um, they do care, but the actions that we have on a daily basis, they don't mm -hmm. align with those values, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as you say, we have to narrow that gap. But, and some people then narrow, they gap, narrow that gap through external activism, and that might be a, a good way to feel at ease, but as you say, you know, like we can't just immediately cut across uh -huh. that moment or process of transition. But I'd love to just talk about this living out of alignment idea because I, yeah. I definitely, it, it holds a lot of weight for me and, and I'm sure yeah. a lot of people. Definitely. So, you know, you're a caring person, you are connected to nature, yeah. you perhaps have kids or you want to and absolutely mm -hmm. you know prioritize having a healthy and safe climate in which yeah. humans can flourish you've got all these values and beliefs and aspirations about how the world should be and what we should all do to protect it and yet you hop in your truck to yeah. drive to work you have a job that requires that you fly several mm -hmm. times a year you know, you have a family full of meat eaters that yeah. refuse to go vegetarian, that you're buying groceries for, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. These are the ways in which our carbon intensive lifestyles uh, yeah. that are very easy to have because they're mm -hmm. marketed to us, they're promoted, we've yeah. been raised in a culture that normalizes them, allow us to very easily live out and yet we know that they are making the problem worse that we care about. And this contradiction can create real discomfort mm -hmm. and ambivalence. It's, a, it's an element of cognitive dissonance where you're kind yeah. of holding two opposing thoughts in your mind yeah. at the same time about what should right. be going on. And you just feel like a hypocrite. Yeah. generally. Yeah. And that sucks. No one <laughs> likes that feeling. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you just, yeah, you feel crummy about it. And um, that can produce then shame and yeah. guilt and these other feelings that are not super productive for getting you to be your most free, capable, open, 
imaginative, right. creative, you know, um, change maker. Yeah. And so this is a place that it's a modern signature of our times. This is where a lot of us find ourselves. Yeah. And even I bought a 1976 RV recently mm -hmm. with my partner, mm -hmm. which is horrific on gas. <laughs> yeah. And immediately after we bought it, I mean, it was very cheap. It was like a, right. a Craigslist yeah. <laughs> funk mobile, weird mm -hmm. 1970s thing on wheels that we just loved. But then we immediately got it and, and we're like, we can't right. use this. We can't <laughs> drive this. This is ridiculous. What yeah. are we doing? This is completely out of alignment with our values. We yeah. should only buy an electric vehicle if we're going to buy one at all. So right. now we, we <laughs> drove to Idaho and bought this wild like yeah. orange leather and brown wood paneling 1970s right. machine but we are only going to park it and uh -huh. use it as a stationary guest room <laughs> it's right you know so even i think it's very easy for people who even think about this stuff constantly to to take actions yeah in the wrong direction then it creates more discomfort as it did right. for me recently with the RV. And so yeah. I made a different decision. The ways are that, you know, we need to be compassionate with ourselves about the fact that this happens. Yeah. And when we do that, we can actually create some space for yeah. us to then move in the direction that we think is better rather yeah. than just lash ourselves and yeah. tell ourselves that we're bad and feel guilty and shame, shame because those are not places that we can yeah. utilize from. You just feel bad. <laughs> Where do you go from there? Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, one solution or one, you know, potential solution that you bring up in another piece is the the idea by Susan Folkman of meaning-based yeah. coping, right? Mm -hmm. Um and I and I think this I, I've come across similar, not specific to individual psychology, but like organizational psychology dealing with, you know, meaning-based strategies and things like that. So I, I think it's definitely um something that people may understand, but it may not be an actual practice that people undertake in their daily lives. But just, just to briefly talk about what that is, um, just pulling from the piece, you say that it involves positively reappraising a tough predicament or situation um, mm -hmm. by drawing one on one's deepest personal beliefs, values, existential goals, and then using that to kind of connecting and doing actions that perhaps may deal with those tough predicaments in a way that is meaningful right mm -hmm. um so even if the situation is really bad like there could yeah. be something that you can do how how do you it, that to me is actually like it's it's hard for me to practice that i think and i think other people may agree but when you were writing that at least like can you just walk me through when you were writing it and why you you wanted to actually specifically write about this topic about meaning meaning focused coping well because the climate and ecological situation we're in is existential in yeah. terms of the threat that it has mm -hmm. faced humanity with and we then need existential tools to be able to combat it this is not a right. normal predicament or problem that we can yeah. just find a solution to, mm -hmm. you know, we, I think increasingly we'll see people moving away from rhetoric of saving yeah. the planet and, you know, solving the climate right. crisis. We cannot solve this. We have to find ways of living with it. Yeah. 
uh, and reducing the harm that it reaps. So yeah. that means we're also going to be witness to an incredible amount of loss. We already mm -hmm. are. Devastation, yeah. trauma, you know, it's really, yeah. it's really horrific and it widens yeah. existing social injustices that we're already trying mm -hmm. to desperately get a better handle on. So basically we need armor <laughs> and tools to be able to deal with the threat at that yeah. level. We understand it is life or death for many mm -hmm. people and many species. And, you know, who knows yeah. what disasters we might face in our own lives. Mm -hmm. So this tool is one that people can use in any situation, even when we're talking about horrible things like yeah. having a child die, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, being put in a concentration camp, horrific things that humans have endured and survived yeah. through yeah. time and continue to and yeah. will always. And so it's really about looking for the silver linings that can come from misfortune and mm -hmm. exploiting them for the sake of emotional sustenance because they are genuinely there. Yeah. There's not only one outcome. There are many outcomes that can come from any kind of mm -hmm. difficult scenario. The examples I give in the piece are mm -hmm. based on, for example, research that looked at meaning-focused coping in a variety of mothers who yeah. had received HIV-positive diagnoses. And mm -hmm. One way you can deal with that is, of course, to think about what that's going to mean in terms of your lifetime, disease, yeah. uh, perhaps premature death, all the things that come with that. And it can be existentially terrifying. But there's also a way to shift your priorities to focusing on other things that are life-affirming and life-sustaining. Yeah. And they found that these mothers did remarkably better yeah. when they shifted their focus from worrying about their disease to worrying about how to care for their children yeah you know right. it's a different priority this mm -hmm. is what it means to reappraise existential goals like what are you living gotcha. for in this time when that's your yeah. your outlook and reality and result you still have very meaningful things to protect in this life such as your child who you love uncontrollably yeah. you know yeah. and so in that sense it's a shift towards positive emotions right. that are nourishing and they actually feed you, you know, it yeah. allows you to keep going, even though it doesn't yeah. change the, the, the predicament that you're in with mm -hmm. your health. Mm -hmm. Other issues, we've seen a lot of meaning-based coping happening around the pandemic, you know, as people yeah. have been dealing with the grief of, of death of loved ones and community members and loss of normalcy and jobs, yeah. you know, the, the lockdown that yeah. many people have been in has also brought mm -hmm. them a deeper reflection on their own meaning in their lives, what they find to matter most, what their existential goals are, you know, slowing down out of the normal rat race to, yeah. to connect on a more spiritual level with yeah. why we're here and how you want to live as a human would be a different example of how meaning-focused coping is showing up in the present moment for people who are reporting the positive aspects of like lockdown, yeah. for example. Yeah. And in the climate crisis, you know, there's just so much beauty wonder life that is being harmed and lost we need to be able to look for the bright sides yeah. in the face of that much devastation yeah. because it's it's enormously emergent in terms of what's happening as yeah. we see these losses we're also incurring new kinds of solidarity yeah. new kinds of community building 
new methods and tactics and innovations for safeguarding places that hadn't been safeguarded, species, yeah. for example, as well. Mm -hmm. And so there's always ways to redirect and think about what you're getting out of this. Yeah. Another example would be the, the women who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Yeah. yeah. They, lost, they lost their children to drunk drivers. I yeah. mean, absolutely horrific grief and pain, right. such a senseless way yeah. to die you know mm -hmm. and yet they were able to turn it into something positive yeah. by coming together organizing creating this coalition of mothers yeah. against just drunk driving that actually pushed for policy reform right. and completely changed the public conversation and discourse at large around drunk driving and changing yeah. the laws so that's incredibly powerful and positive for so many other families. Yeah. And then that gives them the existential strength to keep going because yeah. they know that they're doing something that matters. Right. It's, it yeah. definitely seems like a feedback loop, yeah. um, especially of resilience too. Where I think resilience itself is, it, it exemplifies a positive feedback loop, like where yeah. you build resilience, yeah. especially something that I'd like to talk about is just when, when we're faced with multiple threats and, and climate, mm -hmm. Climate change is obviously a huge one, and it encompasses so many within that. And oftentimes, you know, they, they happen at the same time, like we're seeing with COVID. Yeah. Right? And yeah. With, with potentially more of these situations, how do you think we should deal with our emotions and just dealing with the possibility that we are facing multiple threats, perhaps at the same time? Which is incredibly, it's a lot. It's very heavy to deal with in the first place. It's a lot. Right? It's a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, it really is a lot. And I think it's our reality. And, uh, you know, I think we should all be prepared to expect mm -hmm. more integrating cascading threats. And we need to do the internal activism to, yeah. to deal with our emotions around this. We need to do this alone and we need to do this in community. I think a right. huge part of, part of this work is finding your people you know, yeah. really getting in touch with people who don't say, oh, you're fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, oh, you're just overwhelming. You're, yeah. you're just overwhelmed. Overre overreacting. Catastrophizing and overreacting. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, you really need to surround yourself with people who understand, who give permission to the concern, yeah. who can level with you and make you feel authentically supported. It just brings so much relief. And it also allows yeah. you to strategize and get creative about ways to address it. Mm -hmm. Intervention points in these complex systems where we can start to affect uh, life-sustaining yeah. changes for a kind of pro-future outcome. Yeah. And uh, I mean, those are, those are very basic answers, mm -hmm. but I think that they are umbrella avenues in yeah. under which then so much can happen right. and so much resilience can be found. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just think everyone needs to upgrade their emotional intelligence yeah. and their ability to not look away from the truth mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to connect with people over the pain and then yeah. find the modes of coping that really work for them, that make them feel strong and spiritually connected. Yeah. I say that in, you know, an atheist way <laughs> or an agnostic yeah. way, yeah. or of course, if you're religious and it's in a religious yeah. way, that's great, but it's about <laughs> understanding the deeper currents that are flowing through you as we, yeah. as we wake up to, you know, exactly yeah. what is happening. So mm -hmm. 
I can't really, can't really say anything more specific unless you want to go into specific coping mechanisms. I just think that people need yeah. to create but, the space in their life to allow the emotions to be processed. Yeah. Creating that space is very vital. Yeah. Creating yeah. That space. I've, I've actually like talked about creating space with like multiple guests and it's just a topic that keeps coming up because it is so important. <laughs> like it, it's very, very necessary to create space for yourself and other people. It is. Um, and it is a, I, I'm thankful that I've learned how to do that. I'm learning how to do that, you know, but it, it's tough when like other people don't even want to, or like, they, yeah, but that's, that's another conversation. But like, I just want to acknowledge that that's a reality that like a lot of people don't want to make space. It's a very big reality. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in terms of coping mechanisms, we, we don't have to get into specifics, but I just also wanted to acknowledge that we have lots of terrible ones. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and especially like as a culture, you know, at least like the ones that I'm aware of, especially uh, on social media, is just like memeing the hell out of things. Like just, yeah. <laughs> just you know, using humor, which can be a really, really great of a strategy. But I think a lot of it, desensitizes us and it actually makes it harder to talk about things with yeah. friends sometimes when it's just yeah. on social media and not taken necessarily seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you see that, that, that type of coping mechanism where it is, we're actually just turning away from it, right? We've, we've talked about it a little bit <laughs> um, throughout yeah. the conversation, but just like looking away or Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of quick dismissal that comes from a place of sheer hopelessness. But, um, (laughs) you know, the people who are like, oh, we're just all effed anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's the point? And then make some dark meme about it. Like a nihilistic view. I mean, it's, it seems very nihilistic. Like, even though I don't necessarily think that those people are right. And you've, we've, you've talked about the, the value misalignment, but I think like often, right. The people that are memeing, the hell out of those things actually do care. It's just like their yeah. mechanism. Right? It, it's a mechanism, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it and it allows them to have some certainty in a deeply uncertain situation. And the human brain is very yeah. bad at dealing with uncertainty. <laughs> and so even if it's a terrifying scenario, we would rather yeah. land on something that sounds certain, even if it means we're all just totally effed and there's yeah. nothing we can do here. Yeah. And so people often do go in that direction or they go in the opposite direction and they mm-hmm. say, oh, it's certain that we're going to innovate our way out of this mess oh. and technological solutions and yeah. effective activism. We'll be fine. Green New Deal will solve everything yes. and yes. here we go. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah. there's there's two different ways in which people really search for certainty <laughs> yeah. when we yeah. need to be able to live in the tense gap of uncertainty in between yeah. them right. to, to authentically relate to what's going on because yeah. no one knows. No. And there's a huge possibility spectrum there. Yeah. available to us yeah and so there's there are ways of deflecting right humor yeah. can be a way of just um laughing it off and not dealing with it and yeah. doing so within a socially acceptable confine because yeah. people like humor people like um you know quick kind of retorts on social media people yeah. like puns and outsmarting people <laughs> <laughs> um without a lot of deep dealing with yeah. the the issue itself sometimes so yeah yeah, I mean it's or the causality to yeah all of that I see I see that I also see a lot of upholding of anger as the right climate emotion to Mm -hmm. have because that's true it means that you're operating from a place of strength when you're angry 
and you're, uh, you know, enraged for very righteous reasons yeah. that, you know, you're fully entitled to have because of mm -hmm. how much lying and perversion and, uh, you know, corruption there's yeah. been involved in from certain interests to make this crisis as bad as it is, yeah. then you can, then you can operate from still a very emotionally activated perspective, but right. just one of pure, pure yeah. brazenness and boldness and, yeah. uh, I, I don't give a shitness, you know? Yeah. And so you mentioned the, sense, the punk rock, the, a punk rock yeah. version of you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think that that can be very uplifting and empowering for people. Yeah. However, I do get a little bit concerned when I see, you know, big kind of leaders in this space upholding yeah. anger as the right emotion, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't want to give in to the anxiety and grief. Yeah. Which is a narrative that I sometimes see. Yeah. And then the anger is just a shield for other emotions that also need to be processed. Yeah. You know, they yeah. also need to be integrated and you need to allow them to sometimes take the steering wheel of your life for right. the day, yeah. you know, and that's okay. We don't always need to be a completely like bold, fiery, yeah. raging, angry yeah. activist that feels a hundred percent empowered all of the time. Right. Sometimes it's okay to just feel terrified yeah. or cry. And vulnerable. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I mean, like, it sounds that like it would be actually very exhausting <laughs> to feel angry all the time. Um, yeah. I mean, like it's just, it, it's not a healthy mechanism. Um, mm. It's not a healthy feeling to have all the time. One last, one last thing that I'd love to talk about is just the, we've talked a lot about not having stability and like dealing with uncertainty of all these threats, right? But I think like your newsletter is a source of stability within all this uncertainty. And even though you're talking about a lot of uncertain things in your newsletter, it is still a very, like, it's, it's, a, it's a source of stability for people reading it. Why do you right? think it is? <laughs> I think because it, it, it's very clear what, it, it, even if um, maybe each article differs from each other, right? Like the, the topic it's, uh, itself of dealing with anxiety around climate change and eco, mm -hmm. eco grief and eco anxiety, like you have an entire newsletter on it and you're writing basically every week on it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when people are reading it, they know that you also care, like mm -hmm. if not as much or the same or even more than the reader, like mm -hmm. the reader can always come back to the newsletter and just feel like all these other people that are reading this too and yourself, all feel the same thing. Well, that's really nice to hear. And I think and so. Thank you. And I, I mean, that's amazing. If that's, if people are feeling like this can be a stable place for them, yeah. then that is, that is what I hope for it to offer. Yeah. And I think it just goes back to this point we've discussed that what is so crucial is finding your people. Yeah. It's finding others who you can connect with over these emotions because just yeah. that in itself yeah. makes the uncertainty more bearable. Just that in itself is a yeah. coping mechanism and it's strengthening and it's empowering when you know yeah. you're not alone. Yeah. It really does, it really does make it feel more manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Even if on the outside, it doesn't look that way. At least internally we can yeah. manage it ourselves. Yeah. Right. Totally. 
that's it for episode six of Sustainable with Dr. Britt Ray. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I encourage you to continue checking out her work on her newsletter, follow her on Twitter, and visit her website. I hope this episode inspires you to engage with your own emotions around the climate crisis and to find others that share those same emotions. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll see you next time.